Well, thank you. Once again, it's a delight to be with you all. Uh, although I'm a little concerned, even though you have shown yourself to be very hospitable to us, the pastor locked my wife and I up in the building for 48 hours during the blizzard with very little food and sustenance. It's a social experiment, isn't it? I've developed a tremor that uh, you will be held accountable for. But I understand you have $2 million in liability insurance, so we're good. Uh, everyone in this room who is born again of the Spirit of God has a unique story to tell. My story is different from your story. I must tell mine, and uh, you must tell yours. You see, God has saved your soul, and He's brought you into His spiritual family for a divine purpose, which is to glorify Him, to declare His glory to the nations, to your generation, starting right here in your own community. From the day that you were spiritually born into God's family, He's been equipping you for that task, the task of being salt and light to your, gen your generation. Your spiritual journey is unique to you and to you alone. The trials and blessings are your own personal experiences designed by God to make you a more effective testimony of His grace to everyone you meet. You simply need to tell the story of your encounter with the gospel of Jesus Christ as you make Him known to your world. To make the God of salvation known, must be born out of an authentic faith, out of an, a transparent life. It's about communicating the gospel through an imperfect life which is lived daily in the grace and providence of God. It's not so much an academic exercise. It is more of a relationship-building enterprise touching the lives of the people around you with the story of what God is doing in you. You may know that I'm a fifth-generation African. I was born to African colonial parents of European descent. Although I grew up thinking myself to be a Christian, I was not. When I was 15 years old, an American missionary came to my own country of Zimbabwe in the midst of a war and showed me and those in my town the authentic story of his own encounter with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Although I already believed that Jesus had died for the sins of the world, I finally understood that he died for my sins also. I bowed the knee to Jesus Christ, I confessed my sins, and was born again by the Spirit of God. A new song was placed in my heart, and a new story of God's call on my life had begun. When I was 16, God called me to preach to my own people. Romans chapter 10, verses 14 and 15, was the text that God used to burn deeply His call into my heart. How then shall they call on Him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in Him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? 
And how shall they preach except they be sent, as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things. God began to open the doors for my ministry training, and along the way He brought Julie into my life as my wife and ministry partner, and then He led us back to my beloved African continent where we have declared the glory of God together as missionaries for 31 years. God continues to write the story of our lives as we navigate the mountaintops and as we struggle through the valleys. What is true of our experience is true also of yours. I want to be careful this morning not to convey the notion that missionaries have it all together all the time. That simply is not true. Our struggles are real, and our struggles are frequent, just as yours are. We are not as consistently faithful as we ought to be. Our efforts at evangelism are often clumsy and ineffective. The men and women we disciple towards ministry frequently desert the cause after we have poured years of time and resources into them. Our well-intentioned church planting strategies sometimes fail. That is the unvarnished truth. That is why missionaries need you, the supporting church. We need your love. We need your understanding. That is why we ask for your faithful intercession on our behalf. And you are a praying church. I've heard that over and over in the days that we have been here. And yet, God continues to use ordinary people like us to make His name known on the southern coastline of Africa, and sometimes, in fact, in spite of us, regrettably. You understand, I'm sure, that the Bible never sugarcoats the truth about its heroes. It gives the whole story, the good news and the bad news, both at the same time. When the Bible describes the great men and women of the Old Testament and the New Testament, it gives the transparent truth about their struggles, about their temptations, about their difficulties and their defeats. When the Bible tells us about Noah, who built an ark, it also shows how Noah got drunk and was exposed before his sons. When the Bible tells the story of Abraham, the great father of the faith, it explains how not once but twice he lied about his wife in order to save his own skin. When the Bible tells us about Jacob, it shows not only his great exploits of faith, it also describes how he cheated his brother Esau and how he cheated others during his lifetime. When the Bible tells us the story of Moses, it doesn't just tell of the parting of the Red Sea. It also tells how Moses murdered that Egyptian and how he struck the rock in defiance of the Lord's command and was denied entrance into the promised land. When the Bible tells us about David, it doesn't just tell us about his great victory over Goliath. It also reveals his adultery and his murder of Uriah the Hittite. When the Bible tells us about Peter, it doesn't just show that he walked on water, it also tells about that dark night in which he not once, not twice, but three times denied the Lord. You see, when the Bible paints the picture of its great heroes, it does not just use the light colors of victory and happiness and joy, it, it paints also the full portrait with the dark colors of sadness and difficulty, depression, defeat, sin, 
and temptation. That is certainly the case when we come to the story of that great mountain man, Elijah. In 1 Kings chapter 18, we learn that Elijah had won a great victory over Ahab and the prophets of Baal on that unforgettable day at Mount Carmel. Uh, the Bible shows the stark reality that immediately following that great move of God at Carmel, the story moves from Elijah's greatest victory to his most humiliating defeat. Uh, without a pause, we go from the, the heights of the mountaintop to the depths of the deepest valley. This is the story of Elijah's personal breakdown. This is the story of Elijah's battle with discouragement, despondency, and depression. One writer calls this Elijah's nervous breakdown. And I remind you again of what has just happened. Elijah was up on the mountain where he faced down 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah. It was 850 to 1, plus God, of course. The prophets of Baal danced around. They moaned and they groaned and they put their long hair down on the ground and they prophesied to Baal and they cut themselves and nothing happened. And then Elijah prayed a simple prayer asking that God demonstrate his mighty power that the hearts of the people might be turned back to the Lord. Immediately, fire from heaven came down, consuming not only the offering on the altar, but also licked up all of the water that had been poured into the surrounding trench. The people of Israel bowed down and said, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. All the prophets of Baal were slaughtered that day. Then an enormous thunderstorm came, came off the ocean, drenching the land and breaking the drought. The mountaintop story of chapter 18 ends with Ahab heading back to Jezreel to bring the news to Jezebel. But Elijah, the, the Bible tells us, was so pumped up uh, that he managed to outrun Ahab's chariot and got back to Jezreel before him. A remarkable story. So you would think that the next chapter, chapter 19, would read this way. <laughs> and Elijah rejoiced in the Lord his God. He made a sacrifice to give thanks to God, and all the people came, and Elijah preached to them the word of the Lord. Well, if you noticed in one Kings chapter 19, that's not what happens. In fact, you'll be struck by the stunning contrast of Elijah's mood from chapter 18 to chapter 19. Elijah doesn't stop very long in Jezreel to face up to Ahab and Jezebel, as you might expect. He continues south to Beersheba. He heads south and west as far from the land of promise as he could get, back down to Mount Horeb, which is another name for Sinai. Hundreds of miles away, he hides in a cave, prays to God to take his life. This is Elijah's battle with depression. I think many of us might be able to identify with him on this level. And we all understand that depression is a major problem in our town. Every year in the Western world, a significant percentage of adults are diagnosed with some degree of clinical depression. Experts tell us that one out of every four women will suffer from clinical depression at some point, and one out of ten men. Researchers attribute that difference in numbers to the fact that men are far less likely to admit their problems and far less likely to 
seek help. It's estimated that depression costs just the American economy alone $50 billion a year. In fact, it is considered to be the leading cause of disability in your country. Also, I would surmise that even in this room, there will be some who are taking medications for anxiety and depression. It's not unusual in our day. It's not unusual among Christians in the modern Western church. We know that there are many causes for depression, and these things are often interrelated, including stress, difficulty in personal relationships, medical problems, poor diet, trauma, grief, abuse, and of course we cannot ignore genetic factors. Uh, symptoms include persistent sadness, feelings of hopelessness, loss of energy, sleeplessness, difficulty concentrating, irritability, and it sometimes might even lead to thoughts of suicide. Researchers tell us that depression seems to be spread across all sectors of society. No one is exempt. And please, understand this, it's not a matter of intelligence or education levels, age, or even social status. Some of the most prominent people in history have struggled with feelings of depression. You'll be surprised to know who said the following, and I quote, I am now the most miserable man living. If what I feel were distributed to the whole human family, there would not be one cheerful soul on earth. To remain as I am is impossible. I must die to be better. Have you ever felt that way? I must die to be better? Well, Abraham Lincoln apparently felt that way because those are his words. Many people consider Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the famous London pastor of the late 1800s, to be the greatest preacher since the Apostle Paul. And yet Spurgeon openly admitted that he often struggled with depression. And it's a matter of record that Spurgeon, who lived with various physical challenges on more than one occasion, was so overcome with feelings of worthlessness, depression, and despondency that he left his pulpit in London to travel to a resort in France where he stayed two or three months at a time. It's true. And often he spent days resting on the couch because he was so depressed, so fearful, and so despondent. His marvelous book, Lectures to, My Student, uh, Lectures to My Students, contains a chapter called The Minister's Fainting Fits. Warren Wiersbe says that every pastor should read it at least once a year. Spurgeon is perfectly transparent about the pressures that men and women in ministry face. He begins the chapter this way. He says, and I'm quoting again, As it is recorded that David in the heat of battle waxed faint, so may it be written of all the servants of the Lord. Fits of depression come over the most of us. Usually cheerful as we may be, we must at intervals be cast down. The strong are not always vigorous, the wise not always ready, the brave not always courageous, and the joyous not always happy. He goes on to say many other helpful things in this chapter, but one point seems to be especially relevant. In giving a list of the times when we are most prone to depression, this is where he begins, quoting, First among them, he says, I must mention the hour of great success, when at last a long-cherished desire is fulfilled, when God has been glorified greatly by our means, and a great triumph achieved, then we are apt to faint. 
It might be imagined that amid special favors, our soul would soar to the heights of ecstasy and rejoice with joy unspeakable, but it's generally the reverse. The Lord seldom exposes his warriors to the perils of exaltation over victory. He knows that few of them can endure such a test and therefore dashes their cup with bitterness. Oh my. He offers Elijah as proof of this point. And he concludes, quoting again, that in some measure depression and discouragement after a great victory are part of the gracious discipline of God's mercy, lest we become proud and puffed up at our own accomplishments. Wow. It is in that light that we should study this ancient story, for it is much to teach us today. Uh, the Bible describes this story for the benefit of all who serve the Lord, for all who desire to make Him great among the nations. What happened to Charles Haddon Spurgeon? What happened to your own beloved President Lincoln? What happened to Elijah the Tishbite will probably happen to all of us sooner or later, and particularly to those who are committed to faithfully living as salt and light to their generation. Let's examine his condition for just a moment, if you would indulge me. 1 Kings chapter 19, verses 1 and 2. 1 Kings chapter 19, 1 and 2. And Ahab told Jezebel that all that Elijah had done, and with all how he had slain all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger unto Elijah, saying, So let the gods do to me, and more also, if I make not thy life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. Oh, you can just imagine how eagerly Jezebel awaited the return of her husband Ahab. Uh, when she saw his chariot returning from Mount Carmel, she assumed it must be with good news. When he came into the palace of Jezreel, I'm sure his face told the story. And since it was raining across the land, I suppose Jezebel took it as a sign that the prophets of Baal had won the day. Well, Ahab gives her the bad news. Uh, so what happened uh, with the prophets at Baal, she asks. Um, well, they're all dead. Oh, what happened on top of the mountain? Um... The Lord God of Elijah won the day, and Baal was defeated, sweetie. <laughs> Shakespeare said that hell hath no fury like a woman scorned. Now Jezebel is going to get even. She sends a messenger to Elijah with some ominous news. So, let the gods do to me and more also, if I do not make thy life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. Well, I think it's the tomorrow part that seemed to get to Elijah. Uh, he was not a man that would have go uh, gotten easily flustered by a nonspecific threat. But Jezebel is saying, check your watch, man of God, because this, by this time tomorrow, I'm going to slice you and I'm going to dice you in the same way that you did to the prophets of Baal. And how does Elijah respond? Take a look at verse 3. And when he saw that, or literally he became afraid, 
He arose and went for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongeth to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a juniper tree, and he requested for himself that he might die and said, It is enough now, O Lord. Take away my life, for I am not better than my father's. Well, first thing we notice is that he was gripped by fear and doubt in verse 3. Uh, why be afraid of this woman? Elijah has just witnessed an amazing, powerful outpouring of God's uh, sovereignty and might. But he's afraid of her nonetheless. Secondly, he reacts impulsively. The text says that he ran from Jezreel, which is in the northern part of Israel, not far from the Sea of Galilee, all the way down south to Beersheba, which is on the far southern border of the nation. He ran past Jerusalem, past Bethlehem, past Hebron. Elijah is so scared that he decides to run as far from Jezreel as he can get. That meant a change of the climate from the, the lush pasture lands of uh, Jezreel to the desert of Beersheba. The third thing we notice in his response is that he wants to be alone. He left his servant in Beersheba. Well, that was a big mistake. And the one thing he needed most was somebody to encourage him. But he leaves his servant in Beersheba and walks into the desert a day's journey, sits under a juniper or a broom tree, and prays that he might die. Elijah heads for the most remote place he can find. And perhaps you can identify with him. I can. And when I am gripped by fear and doubt, I tend to want to run away and be by myself, and that's not necessarily a good idea. The fourth thing we notice about him is that he allowed himself to be controlled by dark thoughts. Ever felt this way? Lord, I've had enough. Lord, this is it. Take my life. I'm a total failure. I can never recover from this thing. At this moment, mighty Elijah, God's mountain man, is filled with self-pity. He's temporarily lost his faith in God, and he's gripped by fear and doubt, so he runs away from his problems. He's overwhelmed by despair, and now he's filled with dark thoughts. Listen, my friends, this can, this can happen to any of us at any time, on any continent, in any calling of life. Now, before, before you get down on Elijah, walk a mile in his sandals. Yes, it's obvious. He didn't respond rightly to the pressure he faced, but how many of us in this room this morning would have done any better? I believe that those whom God calls to do great things for Him are often the ones who are most prone to inner struggles. They feel trapped in the prison cell of despondency and depression. And now here's Elijah, a great man of God, spiraling downward, completely controlled by dark thoughts and filled with pity. Well, let's just take a moment and diagnose his condition, if we, if we can. If you study the biblical record, it seems clear that three things have happened to Elijah to bring him to this breaking point. These three things are very understandable. They go together, and they can happen to any of us at any time. First of all, we see that he is overstrained mentally. 
It is possible to be under such, so, so much pressure for such a long time that it causes the spring of life to be wound so tightly that it eventually must break. I consider Elijah's role as a prophet. From the mountains of Gilead, to the king's palace, to the brook, to the widow's home, to the showdown on Mount Carmel, it's been one crisis after another. Everyone has a limit. You've got your limit, and I've got mine. It's a good thing to realize when you've come to the end of your rope, and it's a good thing to realize that before you get to the end of the rope. Elijah was overstrained mentally. He had pushed himself until he could push no longer. The strains of life and ministry had hacked away at him until he was at a breaking point. The second thing we notice is that he was physically exhausted. I've always loved the account in Mark chapter 6, and uh, somebody mentioned it last night, where Jesus told his disciples to come apart for a while. They had just returned from their first preaching tour, and uh, he recognized their, recognized their need uh, for a vacay, so he takes them on the boat across the Sea of Galilee to a place to rest a while. You know the story. They get to the other side, and who's greeting them on the other shore? But 20,000 people, as far as we can surmise, this was the feeding of the 5,000. And Jesus looks out, and he's moved with compassion to, uh, toward them. He sees them as sheep needing a shepherd, and he begin, begins to teach them many things. Sometimes it happens that way. But the principle holds true. If we don't come apart and rest a while, we will simply come apart. There is a time when you need to get up and go to work. There's a time when you need to lay down and take a nap. There are times when God, God's work demands strenuous action, and there's a time when you simply need to sit in the recliner, dial it back, grab a snack, pick up the remote, and just chill for a while, and that's where you're going to find me. See, there's a time to be active and a time to be busy. There's a time to relax. There's a time to write, a time to work, a time to preach, and then there's a time to put on your helmet and just take a, a ride on the bike. Solomon reminded us in Ecclesiastes chapter 3 that there is a time for everything under the sun, a time for war and a time for peace, a time to sow and a time to reap, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to be born and a time to die, to everything, turn, turn, turn. There is a season, turn, turn. Some of you older people can remember that from the 70s. I know what they listen to in their spare time, Pastor. God ordains every season of life, including the times of hard work and the times when we must rest. Sadly, in our 21st century world, America. The reward tends to go to those who burn themselves out the quickest. Elijah was overstrained mentally, he was exhausted physically, and thirdly, we see that Elijah was out of touch spiritually. Verse 3 says that when he saw, or literally when he was afraid, he ran for his life. Is it possible that the great prophet of God has reached such a low point? How can this be? Well, let me tell you, it's probably going to happen to all of us sometime or another. His fundamental problem is his mind is overstressed, his body is physically exhausted, and now his eyes are off the Lord and they're on his circumstances. No wonder Elijah is scared. 
He's been under enormous pressure for so long that he can't think clearly. Give him three nights sleep and Jezebel probably won't bother him anymore. But that's why the little phrase in verse 3 is so important. And when he saw. When he was on the mountain, all he could see was God. The prophets of Baal didn't bother him at all. The circumstances didn't matter. It was Elijah and God. But now in his state of emotional exhaustion, he, all he sees is Jezebel. All he hears is Jezebel. She's in his head. And where he normally would have stood his ground, he tucks tail and runs for cover. In fact, he keeps on running and doesn't stop until he ends up in a cave on Mount Sinai, hundreds of miles away. By the middle of this chapter, we find the mighty prophet of God cowering in that cave, wishing to die, feeling utterly alone, lost in his own despair. But God is not finished with his servant yet. Though he ran as fast and as far as he could, Elijah could not outrun the Lord. God has much more work for him to do, so Elijah can't stay under the broom tree or in a cave forever. And even though he's made many mistakes, here's the great news, he is still God's man, and so are you, God's man or God's woman, that is. No matter how far you think you have fallen away from the favor of the Lord, if you are his child, he is not finished with you yet. You will see in verse 9 that God holds Elijah accountable for being so far from him. In verse 10, Elijah has a, has a pity party as he defends his actions before God. And then finally, God does three things with him in verses 11 through 18. He confronts Elijah, reminds him of his power, reminds him of his call on his life. God has always provided for Elijah. He's enabled him, he's empowered him, and he's not about to let him down now. Secondly, he reminds Elijah that he is not alone and that there are, that there are in fact, 7,000 other, uh, 7, others who have also not bowed the knee to Baal. He has a support group of like-minded people to help him. And thirdly, he tells Elijah to return north, to face up to his responsibilities. In fact, he is instructing him to retrace his steps. One of the remedies for depression, if you know anything about depression in your life, it's like a spiral. You've got to walk back up that spiral, retrace some steps if you're going to have victory over it. My fellow Christian, the seasons of discouragement and depression are reminders of your need for utter dependence upon God. You need to look to Him for affirmation and significance, not to those around you. You must remember that you are not alone. God has a support group for you right here in this local assembly. You must return to the place you left him in your time of discouragement, and you might just need to retrace some steps back to the place where you wandered away from him. No matter what you're going through right now, this will pass. That is, either the circumstance will pass or you will pass. Something's going to pass, but whatever happens, it's okay. It's going to be fine. Don't give up. You have a story to tell, a story to tell that only you can tell to your generation. It's a story of grace and mercy. It's a story splattered with victories and defeats. 
It's your story, a story of a loving Savior who brought you out, uh, bought you out of the slave market of sin, who rescued you from an eternity in hell, who made you a child of God, an heir of God, a joint heir with Jesus Christ. You are compelled to make Him known, no matter whether you feel worthy or not. You must make Him known, even through the cracks in that fragile clay pot of your life. You see, it's not about you. It's not about how good you can be or how long you can keep up a brave face. It's about showcasing the treasure of the life who dwells within you. It's about the life of Jesus in you, and you will shine through. He will shine through the blemishes and the fractures of your life if you will let Him. Don't allow the discouragements or the failures or the anxieties or the depressions of life to keep you from making known to your generation, one soul at a time, this great God who has changed your life forever. He shines brightest through the most fragile of vessels. Don't give up. Don't turn back. Don't be defeated. And if you happen to be doing well right now, praise the Lord, that's great news. But consider the possibility that somebody very close to you may not be in such a good place. Your spouse, your child, your colleague at work, your fellow church member, your pastor, your missionary. Be God's instrument to restore them to the joy of their salvation. Help them to return once more to the eternal purpose of making God known through their lives to others. And then be sure to remind them that probably the most effective remedy for their depression and defeat is to move the attention off of themselves and to minister the grace of God to someone else who may be struggling along the journey of life. There is no better therapy, my dear friends, than to serve God by serving others. That's our motto. That's our family motto. And I wish it would become yours. You see, life isn't going to get easier. The opportunities to showcase God to a lost and dying world is not going to become any more convenient. But God has called each of us to serve Him by serving others, by building into their lives, by earning the right to speak the grace and mercy of God into their lives. And He chooses to use you. 